Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at a text that deals with the issue of church unity and uh, basic small little series. Tonight's more of focus on general principles of why disunity exists with a little bit of the positive side of attaining it. So uh, if you have your Bibles and want to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to read verses 12 to 13. First Corinthians 12, verse 12. Just, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let us pray. Father, please help us to understand your word, to apply it, and to know that it is better to obey than to disobey, to receive your word rather than to reject it. Open our eyes, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and there are no uh, big prizes for getting the answer to this question correct, but what word is the most used word in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And the answer is very obviously one. One, 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 one. And it's in the context of Paul writing to the Corinthians, speaking about the body of Christ. And we can look at the unity of the church from two basic angles. The first angle would be the universal church at large, the uh, visible church of God. And within the visible church, there's what we call the invisible church. And it's not that you can't see the people, but that we recognize in the visible church, there is wheat and tares. There are those who truly belong to Christ and those who do not. And that's the sort of macrocosm, the big perspective of the church universal in heaven and on earth. It is Everyone anywhere professing the name of Christ. But then we can also look at the church from the perspective of the local body, the church that you go to, Faith Vancouver Presbyterian Church, a local church in Vancouver uh, of which you are part of a body. And the New Testament goes in between dealing with these types of issues, uh, whether large perspective or the narrow perspective, we are told that the church has one head. Well, is that true of the local church or the universal church? Well, it's true of both. But the church has one head, and there is one Spirit, and that one Spirit is uh, the Holy Spirit that unites us all to Christ so that we all have a union together with one another as we are united to our Savior. There is one foundation, and this one foundation belongs to the church universal. There is no other foundation upon which the church is built except Christ Jesus. There is one faith and one baptism. One faith in the sense that uh, we believe in the one Lord. There is one baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there is one body. And these are all true of the universal church, but they're also true of the local church. Now, 
That is to say, the goal of the church, therefore, is to have this oneness. And this oneness we call unity. Church unity. Now in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we are told, now the full number of those who believed, that is, in the one faith, in the one Savior, by the one Spirit, were of one heart and soul. So there was a time where in the Scriptures we are told explicitly that the people who believed were of one heart and soul. And you may ask yourself this question, why were they so closely united to one another that the Holy Spirit would inspire Luke to write that the church was of one heart and soul? And the obvious answer, besides the fact that they all had the Holy Spirit and believed in Jesus Christ, is this. The church was persecuted. And when persecution comes upon the church in a very vigorous and tangible way, it has an extraordinary effect upon the people of God. That is to say, it unites them together very closely. This happened during the times of the Reformation and the Puritans, many other eras. They are not the only eras of glory in the church. Uh, but in the 17th century, for example, the Puritans in 1660 and 1662, there was an act of uniformity, and many Puritans were kicked out of the church. And before 1660, the, the Baptists weren't a particularly popular bunch among the Puritans. They existed, but they weren't exactly loved to any great extent. They were uh, seen as those who were wrong on certain doctrines. And there were, Puritans were mainly paedo-baptists. They were Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and so on. And uh, when they were kicked out of the Church of England because they didn't want to conform to the policies that the government insisted upon in the Church of England, uh, what was interesting is how the Baptists and the Presbyterians and Congregationalists, who uh, were a little edgy with one another before this persecution came, started joining forces together, meeting together. John Owen would read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and Bunyan was a famous Baptist and said how much he loved the book. And my point is that while there were differences among these people that led to them not fellowshipping together at one time, what persecution did, where they were kicked out of their churches and had to meet in conventicles and, and homes and things like that, is it brought them together. So even where there is something negative, like persecution, it can actually be used by God to draw people together where they emphasize their unity rather than their disunity. When things are smooth and good and there's no persecution, we have a lot more time to fight about the things that disunite us. Now, why then does disunity exist? The first point is because even good people disagree. Even good people can disagree. We live in a highly, highly polarized society where there is good and there is bad, where you have to believe this and not that, where this party must be wrong and this party must be right, and the binary is very strong in the way we perceive things. Now that's society at large. The thing is, is it possible for good people to disagree? 
in the church. And we have an example in Acts chapter 15. Now you thought you were going to come tonight and not have to open your Bible. I know some of you. Well, that's my fault because I don't make you turn to the Bible a whole lot. But you need to get your Bible open because in Acts chapter 15, we have the somewhat infamous story of Paul and Barnabas. And picking up at verse 36, we see this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Now, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, that sounds like a noble endeavor. So far, so good. Who could argue with that? Nobody. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Were Paul and Barnabas both Christians? Yes. They were both, as far as I can understand, both willing to die for the cause of the gospel. I have no doubt about that. Now, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, and maybe that was because of a family connection. Mark is called the cousin of Barnabas in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Now, Paul isn't saying that Mark isn't a Christian, but Paul doesn't think it's wise to take Mark because Mark deserted them in Pamphylia. Now, you can go back to chapter 13, verse 13, and see that, but Mark didn't continue. And so Paul is perhaps thinking that Mark is not yet mature enough to finish what he started. This is Paul's perspective on the matter. Maybe Barnabas being uh, an encourager and wanting to give people a second chance and the family connection thinks, no, he wants to come, it's going to be okay, he's aligned himself again with us. But the point is, Paul is saying that the gospel might be at risk again if Mark goes with them. So a sharp disagreement happens. Not just a disagreement, but a sharp disagreement. And friends are separated. What's interesting is Luke doesn't hide the seriousness of this incident. He could have easily glossed over it and said, hey, us Christians, we're always together. We're of one mind and spirit. I wrote that earlier. We have the Apostle Paul. Who could ever disagree with the Apostle Paul? But the point is, two brothers disagreed on a course of action. Who was right? We aren't told actually who was right, but we are told this, that later on in Paul's ministry, he would write and he would say, bring Mark with you, for he is useful to my ministry. So whatever happened, maybe Paul was right at this instance, it wasn't wise to take Mark, or maybe he was wrong. But whatever happened, Mark eventually did prove himself and the situation was resolved because Mark was able to join Paul in his ministry. Now, I bring this up because it's important for us to understand that there can be two Christians who will sharply disagree over matters. 
We experienced that during COVID, did we not? And it should not have been ever a question, in my mind at least, that we are dealing with people who do not understand the gospel, people who do not understand truth, people who don't love the Lord, people who don't love the Bible. What we had to understand is maybe it's impossible for two people to hold contrary opinions to both be right, but it is possible for two people who love the Lord and are willing to die for the sake of the gospel to have a disagreement. This happened with Paul and Barnabas, who are greater men than I ever will be. I assume it will happen to you sitting here, unless you are greater than Paul and Barnabas. That would be quite something. So even good people do disagree, which is why church unity is not always possible. The second point is that not everybody in the church actually does belong to the Lord. This is a little more solemn of a point, but it has to be made because the Scriptures make this point. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is warning us, and he says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. They are causing disunity, division through false teaching. But then Paul makes a very startling statement. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. God knows who are His. And let everyone then who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and you read 2 Timothy and you read 2 Corinthians and you read a lot of the other letters in the New Testament as well as the Gospels, you will find over and over again there is an idea that in the church there are going to be those who do not actually belong to the Lord. And because they do not belong to the Lord, they do not have the Holy Spirit. And because they do not have the Holy Spirit, they do not have the fruit of the Spirit. And because they do not have the fruit of the Spirit, they are lacking in that love, in that patience, in that faithfulness, in that self-control. They are lacking in the graces needed for true unity. So why does church disunity exist? Because there are people who actually don't love the Lord. And because they don't love the Lord, they don't love the Lord's people. Now that may seem like a bitter pill to swallow, and I am not saying, and you must hear me very carefully, that we are to go around then with a cloud of suspicion over those who are and are not. So you say, yes, I like the point that Mark made at the beginning that good people disagree, but I think it's much more likely in this instance that you're one of those who don't belong to the Lord. That is not a gift that I believe we have been entrusted with in our current 
age of the church where you can go around and actually have infallible certainty as to who does and does not belong to the Lord. There was one uh, Puritan in New England, I believe, who felt he had the gift of discernment over who was elect and wasn't, and he would call those who were elect brother and shake their hand and say, good to see you today, brother. And then someone who he felt was not elect, he would say, hello, friend, how are you? I will be shaking your hands on the way out and give you the verdict. Imagine, hello, friend. Hello, brother. Oh, sorry, I meant friend. We don't live in that realm. We have the judgment of charity. But the point is, it doesn't take away from the fact that there will be people who don't actually love the Lord. Whatever reason they're in the church, and it is complex, We don't know. And when you don't love the Lord, it's very hard then to love the Lord's people because the only way to truly love the Lord's people is to love the Lord. The third reason why disunity exists, and this may be counterintuitive to most of us, but it's because we are actually closed off from each other. In other words, hiddenness is opposed to openness. Now, this is what I mean. I mean that you can have a church where there is no obvious disunity. People are not fighting and going crazy and uh, causing commotions all the time. But just because there isn't obvious disunity doesn't necessarily mean that there is the unity that the Scriptures look for. In other words, there is actually a middle ground that is no ground at all, but it is a middle ground. Sure, there's no obvious fighting going on, but there's no cultivation of the unity that God desires. Now, in 2 Corinthians earlier on, before Paul talks about the oneness that the body is to have that we will get to a little bit, he says in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, And then he says, our heart is wide open. The most personal, intense letter of Paul in many respects is 2 Corinthians. Paul opens up his heart, his soul to these Corinthians. And if he is going to write on unity in chapter 12 of the unity that should characterize God's people, you should go earlier on to see what is he saying that would lead to that. And in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. So Paul is opening his heart to them, but he's saying they're not opening their heart to Paul. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Is Paul seeking the unity of God's people in 2 Corinthians? The answer is obviously yes. One of the ways in which he gets there is he opens up his heart. He speaks of who he really is, of his problems, of his concerns, of their problems and concerns. He's open about who he is and who they are. They have closed their hearts to him, and so they are breaking the unity that Paul is yearning for. The church is not a secret society. My dad once was at a rugby club in South Africa, and uh, he injured his hand uh, playing rugby, and they would go into the, the, the bar after and have a, have a beer with the lads, and uh, 
this was just what they did. And one day my dad, with his sore hand, went to shake someone's hand. And he must have done something that uh, the, uh, shall we say, secret society people have their special handshake. And the guy mistook what my dad did with his broken hand for the secret society handshake and welcomed my dad into the fold. And then my dad had to explain, no, sorry, I I injured my hand. That's why I shook your hand that way. And it was a little bit embarrassing for the fellow uh, in the secret society. But uh, the point is, uh, we don't have secret handshakes around here. We're not a secret society. We are open. We're not a cult. People who want to become members, they say, well, you know, what happens if after a while, you know, I I just feel maybe I don't, uh, what's going to happen to me that I, uh, my doctrine aligns better with somewhere else? And I said, listen, if there's no obvious sin, you haven't gone and robbed a bank or killed someone, go ahead. I said, we're not here uh, giving you Kool-Aid to drink. If you want to worship with us, it's fine. And if you want to go somewhere else and worship, that's your business. There may be concerns we might have if it's done where, as I said, there's sin involved, but ordinarily, we're not a secret society. We're an open society. But while we're an open society, we don't always function like an open society. One of the things that my Thursday night Bible study is really bad at, and are you listening? Those of you who are here, I see you. I see all of you. Ah, some aren't here. This is what they're really bad at. When we have prayer requests, they don't give very good prayer requests. I mean, this group, intelligent people, ask lots of questions, which means they want to learn. But my goodness, when we ask for prayer requests, I might as well put my headphones on and listen to Metallica. I have to, it's like pulling teeth sometimes. That's just me being honest and opening my heart. Didn't Paul do that? (laughs) Now, maybe it's because of the form. Maybe if we went and made a nice little lounge and had some lights dimmed and uh, or go to a campfire, you know, like young evangelicals go get really tired around a campfire and they start crying and opening up their hearts and doing those things, maybe that would work. We'll have a campfire next Thursday outside, see if we can get something out of you. But the point is this. The point is that we should be striving for the types of prayer requests where we can open our hearts sometimes to each other and talk about the things that we really need prayer for. Bird sends me his prayer requests, and I have to be honest, their group is a little bit ahead of ours right now in the prayer request thing. I might need to write down what we get and send it off to Ferd and we can compare notes. Who's more sanctified? Which group? I have no doubt my group is more theologically able. (laughs) Just on account of the teaching. But, please don't miss the point. To whom much is given, much is required. We should be opening our hearts more to seek true unity. So yeah, no disunity, but is there true unity? Fourth point, I'm almost there. The fourth point is self-righteousness will always be an impediment to true unity. Now, self-righteousness is actually connected to the point that I've just made, by the way. 
Because self-righteous people don't want to be weak people or vulnerable people. Now, you can go too far. I had lunch today where we were talking with, I was talking with this lovely couple, and, uh, well, somewhat lovely, and uh, we were talking about how sometimes you can go too far. You know, young men get in a group and talk about their inner struggles, and it's like, hang on now, brother, this is not helping matters. But at the same time, self-righteousness can keep us from opening our hearts, but at the same time, we also need to remember self-righteousness is something that is easily perceived by people where they then feel intimidated by that self-righteousness to actually be open. And that may be something we all need to look at is am I giving off vibes of self-righteousness which is hindering unity, hindering people opening up hindering people asking for things, hindering people from saying, this is what I need prayer for, and so on and so forth. We do not parade our sins in a godless way, but we are open about our weaknesses. I remember being at a prayer meeting once, and one of the professors who I never dreamt would struggle with this says, you know, could you please pray for me? I've been struggling with a bit of laziness and getting going with things. And I was shocked thinking, wow, is he sure he wants to say this in front of these people? You know what people are like. They'll take any hint of weakness and they'll use it to their advantage. And it's a shame that I as a young seminarian would think that, that if you would just open your heart a little bit about a struggle, that it would hinder that person because people are so self-righteous they would use it against them. And it's taken me a long time to understand that, yeah, there may be things you will open up about that people who are self-righteous will use in a wicked way, but rather that so that those who are not self-righteous can actually pray for you and see that we really are limping along, most of us, in our Christian life. And I've been helped a lot by understanding that other men and women, boys and girls, have very similar struggles to my own. And though I don't say, oh, how wonderful that we struggle, I do say, wow, I'm not actually abnormal. You also struggle with that? And that can give you some confidence that you are also a child of God because other children of God are struggling with the things you are. But if nobody ever struggles with anything, at least in their outward appearance, How would you then feel about your own struggles? You might think, I'm the only one who sins. And that can be very debilitating for a Christian who thinks everybody else is so much farther ahead than they are and they're struggling at the back. So self-righteousness will keep us from unity. And then finally, ignorance of the truth. Now, there's a number of different ways you can look at this, but one of the things that Paul does in Romans chapter 14 is he is trying to teach the Romans about Christian liberty. And Christian liberty means that there are certain areas of adiaphora. That is, there are things indifferent. So whether you decide to eat meat or not eat meat, whether this day or that day is more special, there are things that really are left to the conscience of the Christian But if you make up a lot of rules that are not biblical, it's going to lead to disunity. Churches can fall into two errors. One where they don't care about God's law at all, but then there's churches where they can come up with not just God's law, but they end up coming up with lots of little laws about what you should wear or not wear, what you should drink or not drink, what you should watch or not watch. And there's a whole long list of unwritten rules. Sometimes they are actually written, by the way. 
And then it becomes a case of who is in, who is out. Who is doing precisely this or precisely that. And it's based upon misunderstanding the truth that God in some areas has given us liberty that is to be informed by faith in obedience to God. Yes, absolutely. But there are areas where one person may deem this unacceptable for them and another person may deem it acceptable. And both are approved by God. I'm not talking about you get to break God's law. I'm saying there are other areas in which they are called adiaphora. And that's what Romans 14 is meant to do. It's to instruct Christians how to live peacefully with the weaker brother. How to not make a big deal of certain things and to get along with one another. So in conclusion, we come to 1 Corinthians 12. How's that for the longest introduction to a sermon? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, how do we come to unity? We have to remember again, we are all part of one body. So it is with Christ. Now what is it that brings us together? Here is the thing that will necessarily make us unified as the people of God. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We are part of the same body because we have the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jews or Greeks, this is a massive, massive distinction of people at that time. They were so different, Jews and Greeks. And Greeks is not just people who live in Greece. It's basically Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, where there was a massive wall of partition where they fundamentally were different in every conceivable way in what they ate and what they appreciated and all of these things. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. What will bring us together? It will be recognizing that we all share the same Spirit. So whatever makes us different, the things that make us similar are more important than the things that make us different. That I have far more in common with a Baptist than I do with a South African or an Englishman. I have far more in common with an Anglican or anyone who possesses the Holy Spirit because we possess the same God, which means we are loved by the same God, which means we love the same God, which means we share in the same forgiveness of sins. And how does this make any practical difference? Well, think about what sometimes keeps us from unity is not forgiving one another, but imagine you understood the Gospel and you really believed it and knew that your greatest sin against you, the greatest sin against you, doesn't compare to your smallest sin against God and yet God accepts you. So what reason do you have then for not accepting your brother? If the greatest sin against you doesn't compare to your smallest sin against God and yet God accepts you, on what theological grounds do you have to not accept your brother for whom Christ died? You recognize A, that you share the same Spirit. B, you share in the same reality of forgiveness of sins. And C, you share in the same Father that you call upon God together. And so what unites you together is greater, as many as the differences may be, will always be greater than what distinguishes you from another. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we will remember the Gospel, remember what we have been saved from, remember who we belong to, and that our theology would inform our living. Help, and help us to open wide our hearts, not being self-righteous, but recognizing we are weak, we stumble, and so for that very reason we need prayer and understanding. Keep any one of us, O Lord, from looking down upon another brother or sister, and let us simply exalt Christ who enables us to be open and free and loving. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.